Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 35, December 2020. The first sound recordings. A conversation with Patrick Feaster. Hi, Paul Meyer here. Welcome to our 35th episode. Before we start time traveling to the dawn of recorded sound, let's play Guess That Accent, as we always do. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I've always wanted to be a nurse. Well, not really. I want to be a, a pediatrician. And I was like, well, maybe that's too many years of school. So downgrade to being like a neonatal nurse because I love babies. I think they're like God's gift to every person who can have a kid. Kids are beautiful. No prizes for guessing the USA, but if you pinned it down to Louisiana, congratulations. It was Ideas Louisiana 3. Alison Hetzel, Idea Associate Editor, recorded this 20-year-old African-American from New Orleans' 9th Ward District in 2005. To hear the whole recording, search for Louisiana 3 at dialectsarchive.com. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? I am an old grandmother, 89 years of age. In 1940, I went up to study. But then after one year and one semester, the war broke out. The first thing I, I felt, and also my cousins, with whom I'm living with, we're all happy because we thought that war was something to, to enjoy. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. My guest this month is Patrick Feaster, principal of firstsounds.org, along with David Giovannoni, and creator of Phonozoic, a website devoted to the history of the phonograph and related media. For more information about Patrick, See the webpage on com devoted to this month's podcast. Joining me in my conversation with Patrick is my son, the film critic and ideas executive editor Cameron Meyer, who, with his interest in the history of photography, film and recorded sound, alerted me to this fascinating field of scholarship. So, Patrick, thanks so very much for joining Cameron and me on this podcast that I've been looking forward to for some time uh, as a fan of historical linguistics and someone who's fascinated by being the by being able to recover the human voice from from the distant past this is exactly what i hope for and i want to thank cameron for alerting me to this thanks cameron you are welcome yeah we first wrote to david giovannoni your your good colleague tell us a little bit about uh, about your relationship with david and the the, the foundation of First Sounds and your own website, uh, griffonage.com. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into this field of historical sound recordings and, and how you proceeded. I first encountered David Giovannoni a number of years ago uh, when we were bidding against each other on a set of cylinders, mm -hmm. uh, which he won and I lost. Uh, but uh, I, I'd say overall, it was uh, well worth the experience to uh, get in touch with him. We've corresponded for a number of years and finally met each other in person at a, a conference of the Association for Recorded Sound Collections, or ARSC, A-R-S-C. 
which is a, an organization that's dedicated to all aspects of legacy recorded sound, uh, preservation, uh, research, technical aspects, uh, just ever, everything, all people interested in it coming together at one table. And uh, so we, we, we met each other there. And uh, since then, we've, we've been involved in a number of projects together. The uh, first one was a compact disc release of indecent sound recordings from the 1890s. <laughs> there, was a, there was a box of cylinders that had turned up at uh, Thomas Edison National Historical Site, uh, recordings of uh, obscene stories recorded in the 1890s, uh, which was a thing. Um, people recorded these uh, off-color stories to play on nickel in the slot machines in bars, places like that, or or to listen to at home. Uh, we knew about this. We, we knew that people had been sent to prison or at least sentenced to prison for uh, being involved in this. Uh, but you know, the, the Edison site had uh, found these recordings and uh, wanted to do something with them, but wasn't quite sure what the right thing was. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, David and I uh, ended up uh, working together on the, uh, the album notes to go along with uh, that. Uh, the, the CD's name was Actionable Offenses, Indecent Phonograph Recordings from the 1890s. Uh, spent many uh, delightful hours at home trying to decipher these uh, scratchy, difficult-to-hear uh, recordings uh, full of uh, obscene terminology, <laughs> uh, which often took a, a good bit of digging to figure out. Uh, but it was, was well-received. Uh, I think we did a a responsible job of it. It had to be bleeped when it was played on NPR. Uh, but after we were done with that, we were scoping around for some other project to take on, uh, both us and uh, Archeophone Records. And we came up with this idea of doing a CD of the world's oldest recorded sounds, many of which we knew were not yet available for listening, but we thought it would be nice to, to try to find a way to get them to, uh, to speak and sing. And so we began making a list of what we knew was out there, and ended up pursuing the uh, phonautograms together of uh, Edouard Leon Scott and Martinville, which I expect we'll be wanting to talk about here today. Yes. Cameron, you want to jump in here? Absolutely. Uh, Patrick, it's great to meet you. I first became acquainted with your work, I guess, about 15 years ago. Until then, I had always thought, like almost everyone, that Thomas Edison had been the first to experiment with recorded sound. So I was shocked and surprised to learn that uh, Scott de Martinville had done it more than 15 years before Edison. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your own surprise at learning that here is a person who had done this 15, 16, 17, 18 years before Edison. People have known about Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville for a long time. You can go back and look at the standard histories of recorded sound and you'll find him in there. Uh, but usually he's presented as somebody who came up with the technical concept of recording sounds out of the air. Uh, so just to be clear on what it is he invented, it was his idea to build uh, something like an artificial ear that would pick up sounds out of the air the way the human ear does. The eardrum vibrates in response to incoming sounds. But then instead of passing the vibrations along to the brain, uh, he would cause them to write themselves down on a piece of paper as a, a wavy line on a moving surface. His idea being that if you did this, you could record any sounds out of the air that the human ear is capable of hearing. 
And so people knew about this, that in a strictly technical sense, he had been recording sounds. He did not have any means of playing them back. He didn't think of playing them back. He didn't see playing them back as the point. It was more like a, a seismograph that records earthquakes, uh, but has no mechanism for playing them back. That Nobody would want to play back an earthquake. So you, you could find descriptions of this invention. Uh, you could even find very short traces of sound recordings made using his invention, the phonautograph, uh, back in the 1860s and 1870s. But they were only a split second long, and they had been contrived to show various issues to do with this, the science of sound, with acoustics. Uh, we, maybe we want to see what the blast of a cornet looks like on paper or a, a couple of vowel sounds to see if there's anything visually about them that would allow us to distinguish them. Or what does the uh, combination of two tones uh, played on two organ pipes uh, look like when you combine them? Things like that. So technically, people understood that he had anticipated Edison's phonograph, but, but culturally, there didn't seem to be a lot going on for it. So Patrick, talk to us about the surprise of being able to finally hear these recordings. Because I think if you talk intellectually to people about recorded sound, as you've described it, their reaction is, well, that's amazing, but I want to hear it. So can you talk to us about when we first were able to hear these sounds and a little bit about the technology that allowed that to be possible? One thing you need to understand about the phonogram is that that wavy line on the piece of paper means exactly the same thing as the groove on an LP. If you were to take a microscope or a magnifying glass and look at the groove on an LP, you'd see that all it is is this wavy line coiled into a long spiral. And it, the waves represent you know, sound vibrations. Now, the difficulty is that an LP you can play by dropping a, a needle into it and spinning it on a turntable. Here we're dealing with wavy lines on pieces of paper. How do you get those to sing and talk and make sound? Well, what you have to do is you begin with a very high-resolution scan. And there's really nothing fancy about the equipment used to scan these documents. It's an ordinary flatbed scanner. Now, it's a very high-resolution scanner, but it's really, in principle, no different from a scanner you'd have at home. Uh, so you get this, this document scanned in as a digital image. And now it's just a matter of getting software in some way to take that wavy line and convert it into samples in a digital sound file. Getting that to happen uh, involves a lot of rather picky work, uh, both in graphics editing software and encoding and, and so on. But the principle is really that, just taking that wavy line, which is a graph of values, amplitude over time, and converting those values into something that a digital sound player can play. Should we listen to that first recording? What is it, 1857? We can start with 1857 if you like, although I would caution your listeners not to get your hopes up. <laughs> <laughs> this is, what is this we're going to listen to? It's labeled Scott 32 on my list of media mm -hmm. samples. Introduce this piece. This is one of the phonograms that Scott produced Within about the first year of his uh, his work in, in doing this, uh, he recorded uh, two subjects here. He's alternating between a cornet and the human voice. So he'd record a little bit of cornet, stop the machine. Then he'd record a little bit of human voice, stop the machine, then record a little bit of uh, the cornet and, and alternate between these so that you could look at them and see, hopefully, that they'd look a little bit different. 
So here, here it is, as you say, let, don't get your hopes up, right? I, I couldn't hear the human voice or the cornet, but, but here, is, here is that arguably, right? The first recorded from the air sound. Well, this isn't really, this isn't so much the first of anything, but it is a good example of a really early one. And I'll add, nobody has heard this one before. Uh, this is a recording that you are the first people ever to hear. <laughs> that is exciting. So now you'll get to say, what is it like to hear these things? All 17 seconds. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> now, I'll say, it, uh, uh, David Giovannoni and, and my other First Sounds colleagues and I uh, sometimes will run across one of these extremely early recordings where you know, knowing what it is is impressive and interesting, but, but then you end up listening to it and it doesn't sound like much. Among ourselves, we refer to these recordings as uh, thwips and farts. You might be able to hear some difference in timbre there between the cornet and the human voice, but this recording illustrates rather nicely some of the problems with uh, Scott's phonograms. I'm going to ask a daring question here. I, I, I wondered whether to pose it, but uh, the mystic in me forces me, Patrick, to ask whether in generations to come, maybe in decades to come, we will invent some technology that recovers hidden vibrations recorded on cave walls or the walls of cathedrals from centuries and eons past. What do you think? Is that just too fanciful? It's easy to come up with scenarios where something that like that might have happened. Uh, people have suggested sound uh, being recorded into clay pots as they spun on the potter's wheel or the brush strokes of uh, early modern paintings in which the uh, paintbrush might have picked up sounds of conversation. Uh, one scenario I like to uh, fantasize about myself is uh, vibrations of dinosaurs passing down their tails and being recorded in the traces of their tails. Uh, there are fossil traces left behind by dinosaur tails. So, you know, it's, it's fun to speculate about this and, and you know, perhaps something like this could have happened. But having done a lot of work with these very early recordings from 1857, where someone was intentionally trying to get sound to write itself, and hearing how much difficulty they had in getting something uh, that's even faintly recognizable uh, down in a recoverable form, I'm, I'm doubtful that anyone could have accomplished it just by chance. Hmm. Patrick, going back to the recording that we just listened to, uh, I think we're all fascinated with statistics and what's the first and what's the oldest. We like to have these definitive pronouncements of what is the first. And I realize that the story is often more complicated than that. The recording that we listened to is the oldest surviving recording of sound traveling through the air. Is that accurate to say? The recording you just heard was one of a number of phonautograms that Scott recorded in 1857 and deposited with the Society for the Encouragement of National Industry, which was an organization in France that had given him some financial support in his work. And this was a, a dossier of documents that we found after having read in a, a, an academic article definitively that the whole archive had been lost in a flood. Uh, we were very uh, happy to hear that, in fact, they, they survived perfectly well. 
it's not the first, but it's one of the early examples. The problem is they all sound about like what you just heard. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, Scott was recording these uh, sounds on a piece of paper uh, covered with the soot from an oil lamp uh, wrapped around a cylinder that he was turning by hand as he shouted, sung, uh, did whatever he did, probably into the funnel himself. Now, if you can imagine somebody rotating a cylinder by hand while doing all of this, you can picture for yourself why this might have been a very irregular process, uh, not a good steady rotation such as a motor might have given, but uh, something that uh, would resemble sticking your finger on the label of an LP and spinning it around in a turntable by hand instead of letting the turntable motor do it. It would sound like... Rah, 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 rah. Mm. So when you play his recordings straight off the paper, that's what you get. It sounds like that. So they're, they're interesting to uh, listen to. They're a, a bit of a Rorschach test for the ear as they stand. Yeah. Not the first, but one of a group of very early recordings that... Uh, you know, are technically sound recordings, the recordings of sound out of the air, uh, but with this problem that the speed irregularities are so extreme and we don't have any clear way to fix that. So if I understand you correctly, he was doing many of the re recordings of this type in 1857, and it is simply academic to determine which is the oldest, and perhaps it doesn't matter if it's just a matter of days or weeks. And we could also argue about what is a sound recording. Back before Scott, people had recorded the vibrations of tuning forks and strings like that in a similar way. You'd, you'd pluck a string with a stylus attached to it and let it trace a wavy line on a, a, a moving surface. Uh, you can play that back too. It comes out as a perfectly viable tone. Uh, is that a sound recording? Uh, maybe. It's similar to how we record electric guitars today. Uh, but it's not sound passing through the air. That's the thing that Scott was the first to do. So, I mean, if you tell what you uh, think a sound recording is, I can probably tell you what the first known example is. Uh, but it's this fascinating, astonishing moment when we first are able to really eavesdrop on the past with the same type of objective accuracy we like to associate with photographs that uh, makes this next example that we're, we're uh, I suspect, going to listen to uh, so exciting. That's fascinating. I'll defer to the sound. Let's listen to some more. And which example was it you had in mind, Patrick? The April 9th, 1860, Au Clair de la Lune. When you play this phonogram straight off the paper, uh, like we did with the previous example, it sounds about the same. It's hard to tell what's going on. The voice is rising and falling, and it's, it's, it's not really recognizable. But Scott did something very different uh, when he made this phonogram, something he'd started doing probably during 1859. He would, as before make a record of the voice or a cornet or whatever it is, whatever the subject is he wants to get down on paper. But alongside it, he also recorded the vibrations of a tuning fork. And because we know that a tuning fork will always vibrate at exactly the same rate, we can speed correct the tuning fork and speed correct the voice at the same time and bring it back to an exactly accurate playback speed. So here we can listen and know that the pitches we're hearing are exactly what pitches were passing through the air as Scott made this recording back on April 9th, 1860, before the outbreak of the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. 
It's a little more satisfying than the cornet, isn't it? Well, it's a wonderful selection. Eau Claire de la Lune, a beloved French folk song, very recognizable and and very gratifying. Now, you might say that that's not much of a performance. It sounds rather lugubrious and uh, mm-hmm. uh, very low pitched. In fact, when we first played that back, I happened to be the one who had the task of doing the speed correction, uh, which was uh, very time consuming back in those early days of our work. This is back in 2008. I stayed up all night with a, a sound editing program open, selecting groups of, of five vibrations, adjusting the speed of each one. And you know, by the time the sun came up, I was uh, finally able to hear a recognizable Opéra de la Lune. Uh, but the fact is, we were now absolutely sure that the correct speed is the one you just heard. And it does not sound much like a performance because it isn't really a performance. We're listening to a scientific experiment. Scott wanted to find out if when he sang into the phonograph and looked at the recording afterwards, he could tell the notes apart. And if you sing nice, long-held notes very slowly, chances of being able to do that go up. Do you think we should go from here to um, the Edison 1878, which is, I think, the oldest surviving sound recording that was playable when it was first recorded? Would that be a good place to go, Patrick or Cameron? Well, I'd I'd like to ask Patrick to to clarify that, because as I said before, before I learned about Scott, I thought Edison was the first. And everybody has as part of their consciousness, the Mary had a little lamb experiment from, I guess, 1878 when Edison was first patenting the, uh, the, the, the phonograph. Is it correct that that recording was the first to be able to be played back immediately for listeners? Thomas Edison in 1877 was the first person in the world that we know of who recorded a sound out of the air and then played it back again. That is correct. And that recording does not survive, correct? Uh, that is also correct. In fact, uh, ironically, uh, all of these phonograms that Scott recorded back in the 1850s and 60s that were not intended for playback, uh, we can listen to today. Whereas there's really very little that we can recover from 1877-78 when, in fact, uh, people were trying to record sound to play it back. That brings me to the sound file that we just referenced, this Edison recording, I believe from 1878, which is Sounds of New York. And I was hoping we could listen to that. And Patrick, maybe you talk about what we're hearing and how they recorded it. Is this the, are you getting the the Metropolitan Elevated Railway sounds? Yes. Okay. Just quickly here, did you want to talk at all about those earliest recordings of uh, speech of Scott's? Definitely. Perhaps we should do that first, huh? Certainly just to be sure we don't skip over that. As I said, people often like to describe Scott as anticipating the phonograph technologically. He figured out this principle of recording sound out of the air using something like an artificial ear. But if you read his own writings, he also anticipated it in a cultural sense. He didn't just want his phonograph to be used as a cold scientific instrument. He thought that the phonograph was the solution to this age-old problem of capturing the nuances 
of great dramatic oratory and impassioned speech and brilliant virtuosic performance for posterity so that you could have uh, one of the famous actors from the stage or an opera singer uh, direct their voice into the funnel of his phonograph, record the results on paper, and then you know, years in the future, someone could take that document and playback wasn't part of his picture, but maybe look at it and maybe learn to read the nuances of the human voice from those squiggly lines and, and hear in your mind's ear what it was that uh, had led people to say, oh yeah, so-and-so back in the 1850s, they were just a genius on the stage. And so when he was doing his own experiments with recording speech, he had this piece of dramatic oratory he liked to return to again and again, a speech from a play by Ducis called Othello, the same story as Shakespeare's Othello, except uh, has a happier ending. <laughs> hmm. uh, but the speech that he liked to record over and over again w- went like this. So it must be that to this rival, faithless Edelmon gave this diadem. In their cruel rage, our lions of the desert beneath their burning lair sometimes tear apart the trembling traveler. It would be better for him for their devouring hunger to scatter the scraps of his palpitating flesh than to fall alive into my terrible hands. So this was his equivalent of Mary had a little lamb. Uh, (laughs) And he he would give these... uh, these renditions into the phonograph where you can't really make out the words, but you can make out the intonations. And these recordings uh, survive alongside Eau Claire de la Lune. And maybe in terms of the uh, dramatic performances they preserve, uh, give us a little better view of what Scott really hoped his invention would let people accomplish. But we're going to hear it in French. Uh, We are. And uh, indeed, I did just uh, give it to you in my own uh, English translation. But yes, it is. It it is in French. And uh, perhaps you could make out the words from listening to it. But I'd encourage people to focus on the the intonations, because those are recorded accurately here. But just in case there are some French listeners, French speaking listeners, we have S'il faut que ce rival Edelman infidèle ait remis ce bandeau. Dans le rage cruel, nos lions du désert sous leur entre brûlant. In my best schoolboy French. So here is that. Here is that recording. <laughs> recognizably human speech we hear the melody of it and it's fascinating of course to actors uh, discussing the uh, the history of acting styles to to hear this confirmed that there was this incantatory style this this uh, almost Mm -hmm. chanting almost melodic way of declaiming high verse of course uh, scott himself was not a famous stage actor but uh, one has to presume that he's imitating what he did here on the stage uh, and if you know the words to uh, that you should expect, you can follow uh, what he's saying. Uh, I don't think anybody could uh, decipher it just from the recording, however. I agree. I don't know if you're as fascinated with time travel as I am. As a film critic, I've looked at the early history of cinema, and I'm, uh, I'm fascinated with what was the first movie. You know, there are the movies of, of uh, Louis Le Prince and William Freeze Green and, of course, Edison and 
the Lumiere brothers. And I think the history of sound very much mirrors the early history of, of movies. And you know, I was wondering if you could speak to the time travel and history aspect of all of this as well. I agree that there's a, a good parallel to be drawn here with cinema uh, in two ways. On one hand, uh, we might value the ability that cinema has to let us see into the past, uh, not just in uh, still form as with still photography, but to see people moving around or objects moving around or, or to uh, change perspective in space. Uh, so early sound recordings let us time travel in that sense. They allow us to, to eavesdrop on the past, to hear something that transpired 100, 120 or more years ago, uh, distorted somewhat, uh, not an absolutely... Uh, entirely objectively accurate rendition of whatever it is that happened, but still similar to it as, as through a, a hazy glass. Uh, at the same time, we like to uh, watch early cinema from the standpoint of experiencing the uh, experiments that led to this new mode of communication and uh, the, the, the art of cinema and so forth, it's just seeing it, it come about, what steps people went through to evolve the language of film, if you want to talk about it in those terms. And early sound recordings do that as well. I, what fascinates me just as much as the time travel aspect is listening to people trying to get the phonograph to do things for them or trying to, to wrestle conceptually with the weird new things that the phonograph had made possible where you could talk and perform and sing and do whatever it is you're going to do for people who aren't there in the same room with you and might be listening to you at some other time. How do you talk to them? When is now? Uh, is it when I'm talking? Is it when you're listening? Who is I? Is it me when I'm talking into the phonograph? Or is it the phonograph when it talks to you? Oh, I am the Edison phonograph. All of these things people had to wrestle with. And when you listen to the very earliest sound recordings, you can hear them trying to come to terms with it, uh, fumbling with their, their language, uh, trying out different alternatives that nobody would, have, would, would think to use today. Um, so there's that as well. There's the creative parallels to early cinema to be listened for. Yes. And it's worth noting that from the dawn of cinema, people wanted to marry the picture with the sound. We tend to think with our understanding, our modern understanding of film, that uh, sound film, talking pictures started in 1927. Well, they were trying for the very dawn of cinema, as you know, from 1890 or so to marry moving pictures and sound. It didn't quite work. They had sound on disc experiments where you had to sync the projector with the disc and it was quite messy, but they were experimenting with that all the way up until the uh, 1920s when they finally got true synchronized sound. So I just, I can't help coming back to other media as we talk about sound, how we're always striving to marry these different types of media together for our own entertainment, for our own understanding of history. It's just a fascinating look at entertainment, I think. Absolutely. And although I suppose I'm biased as, as someone who's 
so invested in, in early sound recordings. I wonder if there's not another story to be told here, as uh, uh, Jake Smith and I uh, proposed in an article a few years ago, where the uh, the prehistory of what we, we think of as sound cinema might be told as the history of visualized phonography. All of the different experiments people went through to try to find ways to take sound recordings and add pictures to them, which were not always motion pictures. That's an interesting way to look at it. I'm also interested sort of culturally and intellectually in your article, Rise and Obey the Command, Performative Fidelity and the Exercise of Phonographic Power. I came across some words that were new to me from your article. Performative fidelity (laughs) was one of your terms. And -hmm. you talk about uh, the difference between illocutionary force or its perlocutionary force. Now, that could probably take up an entire podcast on its own, but (laughs) give give us a quick insight into what you're getting at with those arguments. When people write about the phonograph's ability to reproduce sound, they usually talk in terms of audio fidelity. That is, how well did you reproduce the brute facts of what waves were passing through the air when you made the recording? Uh, How clear was it uh, things of that sort? Uh, what I looked at in that article was uh, this other way of weighing fidelity, which was not how accurately to reproduce the sounds, but how accurately do you reproduce what those sounds would have done in their original context, which is an entirely different matter. You can have, for example, a, uh, a sound recording that is uh, impeccable as far as its audio fidelity is concerned, but the the idea that those sounds could do what the live sounds would do might might strike us as ridiculous. Uh, one scenario that came up back in the uh, the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, was uh, this: if you had a minister who spoke the words of a marriage service into the phonograph, and you used it to reproduce that minister's voice, couldn't you use it to marry two people? I mean, why not? You referred to the the speech act of I hereby place you under arrest. And but if you had a robot who was had been conscripted <laughs> into the police force and the robot issued those words, I hereby place you under arrest, would they have the the uh, the effectiveness or the uh, would would we accept that as a compelling speech act? Perhaps, perhaps not. It might uh, depend in part on how well armed the robot was. <laughs> but but you know there are certainly many cases in which we do uh, treat speech as uh, performatively faithful. If I go to the grocery store and use a a self-scanning checkout lane uh, and uh, uh, automated voice tells me to place the last item into the bag or something like that, I'll I'll obey that uh, regardless of how well the voice is reproduced. Uh, People are told to mind the gap when you're getting on or off the London tube. Mind the gap? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we obey it. We mind the gap. We mind the gap when the robot tells us to. And then a lot of cases that might fall somewhere in between uh, is reproduced music, real music, always for all purposes. Uh, How about political speech? Is a reproduced political speech the same thing as a live political speech? Testimony in a court, uh, when that's 
recorded? Uh, you know, does that present any problems? And you know, this thing wasn't just decided once and for all. It's uh, remained uh, controversial and uh, has had to be worked out on a case-by-case basis. And it's not limited to the phonograph either. It came up with the telephone too. Uh, one thing I've been reading lately is this wonderful series of articles written by a group of Irish Catholic priests as to whether it was acceptable to perform the rites of absolution over a telephone. And they went on for page after page after page uh, trying to work that out. Interesting. Where should we go well, from here? I would love to listen to some more recordings. We already referenced the Edison recording from, I believe, 1878, the New York uh, Railway sounds. Mm-hmm. Did we listen to that yet? Uh, we haven't listened to that. You, you, only, you only say something about that? People often like to suggest that Thomas Edison must have known about the phonograph when he invented his phonograph. Uh, I don't think he did. And the reason for that is having gone through his laboratory notes and worked out what seems to have led to what, there's just really nothing in there that uh, suggests he didn't know about the phonograph ahead of time. Uh, But that isn't to say he never used a phonograph. And in 1878, he did. Uh, He took one of his own new phonographs that was designed to record sound for playback and uh, retrofitted it to make it scratch wavy lines on paper. And the reason he did this was he'd been hired by the Metropolitan Elevated Railway. Uh, They had just introduced this new elevated railway, and there were a lot of uh, noise complaints from people who lived alongside it. Uh, It was apparently made a horrible racket as trains passed over this. And so the company, in order to make it seem as though they were doing something about this, uh, hired Thomas Edison. I mean, what better expert for studying sound could you choose than that? And so he and his assistant, Charles Batchelor, went out with this uh, retrofitted phonograph turned into a phonograph. And I guess... uh, stood beside the railroad as trains went by and uh, made records of the sounds. Uh, But the recordings now are very enigmatic. They are, I guess, the oldest surviving sound recordings made by Thomas Edison himself. Uh, So there is that significance to them. But they're very enigmatic. Even now, after having been able to listen to them for a number of years, we're really not quite sure what we're hearing. So what do you think we're going to hear? Our best guess is that what the machine was picking up was the vibration of girders as trains passed over the uh, railway that they were supporting. As with Scott's recordings from 1857, uh, these really do pose something of a Rorschach test for the ear. I'll add that when you hear those uh, sounds uh, that resemble uh, uh, that probably is not a recording of the train itself, but we know from accounts of what Edison and Batchelor were doing that they would uh, periodically shout into the machine just to test to see if it was working. And what they shouted was how as a test phrase. So there we probably are hearing a very distorted version of their own voices from 1878. 
there's so many other wonderful recordings that we could play. I'm struck by the Alexander Graham Bell recording from the mid 1880s that became somewhat famous a few years ago. Um, there's a wonderful recording of a, a Handel composition performed mm -hmm. by an orchestra from 1888. It's a, a chorus uh, in the Crystal Palace. Yes. Uh, all, all good recordings. One other thing that you might uh, be interested in talking about as well is uh, this legacy of early recordings in dialects. Uh, just that this was one of the great attractions of the phonograph as a commercial commodity in its very early years. We like to think that it was mainly promoted as a, a means of reproducing music for entertainment. But if you look at what the most popular recordings actually were and what people were most enthusiastic about, a great deal of it uh, consisted of dialect imitations. Pick one of those for us. The earliest example of this that I know about was not recorded for commercial purposes, but it was uh, recorded to demonstrate the phonograph in London by George Gourod, who was Edison's agent over there. Quite a character. He uh, was responsible for the famous uh, Crystal Palace oratorio recordings of 1888, uh, in June of 1888. Uh, he's also well known for recording the voices of famous people in England, Gladstone, uh, Sir Arthur Sullivan. Uh, the way he did this was, was rather ingenious. He would invite these people to his house uh, known as Little Menlo, which was all full of uh, futuristic electronic gadgetry. And uh, he would have the phonograph tell people to uh, fill their glasses with whatever it was they were drinking and to make toasts and uh, you know, drink after the toasts and things like this. So they'd, they'd be listening to the phonograph telling them to do all this and they'd do it and they'd, they'd get utterly sloshed. And then after all of that, he'd have them speak messages to Thomas Edison to be sent back across the Atlantic <laughs> uh, when their inhibitions were down. But uh, one other thing that he did himself was uh, record imitations. Now he's an American, his own imitations of British accents, mm -hmm. uh, both the British swell uh, or something, I, I guess, loosely akin to Samuel Weller and the Pickwick Papers, mm -hmm. uh, and then the speaking of a, a British lord. Uh, unfortunately, the cylinder in question, the, the very beginning of it is garbled, so we can't quite hear how he's setting it up. But uh, he seems to be indicating that every now and then the phonograph will speak without being spoken to ahead of time. And here's something it told to Edison the other day. And uh, it's, in my opinion, pretty amusing and certainly the oldest known specimen of dialect imitation. 1888, I believe, right? Yes. Here's a little bit of that. Uh, by Joe, my dear boy, you know it's the most extraordinary thing. But you know, ever since I've been over here, blasted for this country, don't you know? Why, you know, I've tried all, I, I've quite forgotten how to speak the old language by Joe. Yeah, my dear boy, the most extraordinary thing. You know, I was invited over here by Joe. Yes, there's lots of by Joes and don't you knows in there, yes. 
Yes, he postures as someone who's forgotten how to speak English when he came to London. So he's forgotten how to speak American. <laughs> Which, of course, is true to a point. The phonograph has been listening to a lot of people who don't speak American and has been reproducing their voices. You see a lot of this back in the day, people uh, anthropomorphizing the phonograph when they describe what it's doing, uh, learning to speak what is spoken into it and so on. So this is another nice case of that. Artificial intelligence taking over our humanity, right? But again, people like to suggest that the phonograph was uh, entertaining mainly as a machine for reproducing music, but it really was applied a lot to entertaining speech. Of course, the phonograph didn't always get the words perfectly. It can be hard to make out the, the words themselves if you had to sit down and transcribe them. But for all that, it was really good about capturing intonations and peculiarities of speech. So when people first began thinking about what they were going to record on phonograph cylinders to put out in nickel in the slot machines and try to get as many nickels uh, put into those slots as they could, uh, they turned to this long tradition of uh, people mimicking different ways of speaking on the stage. And many of the highest paid, most esteemed performers of the early phonograph industry were people who were just very good at imitating Irish voices into the phonograph or rural rube voices. It's an interesting body of work that doesn't get a lot of attention. It was absolutely new to me. Patrick, I'm struck, and, and maybe this is a good way to end the conversation, I'm struck with how in just a few short years, the technology went from these fascinating, but quite difficult to comprehend, difficult to understand pieces of sound to become one of the major pieces of entertainment for people around the world. Uh, we just listened to arguably the highest quality recording that we've listened to during this podcast. And that was from 1888, still very difficult to understand to just four or five years later, phonographs being in people's homes, people buying records, even in my own iTunes, I have the songs of George W. Johnson and some of these landmark recording artists from the 1890s. It grew so quickly. That's amazing. Uh, 1888 was still right on the cusp of uh, the invention being uh, fine-tuned. By 1890 or so, uh, people were able to make fairly decent recordings. And you listen to one that's been kept uh, fairly well and hasn't been played too often. It can sound pretty good. Uh, but a difficulty was there was no good way to make lots of copies of them. You could uh, make a cylinder on a phonograph. If you wanted to make more, your best bet was to have several phonographs and record something at the same time on all of them. Uh, but that took a lot of coordination and uh, didn't often go very well. Uh, so really, it was in 1902 or so that the possibility of making as many copies of the sound recording as you wanted uh, really uh, became viable. And so that was a real milestone in the history of, of recorded sound that had implications for just about every aspect of the, uh, the culture and the business. Uh, before that point, for instance, it was relatively uncommon to have any recording of a particularly famous person's voice sold commercially. Uh, what you tended to have instead uh, was imitations 
of the voices of you know, politicians and actors and uh, things of that sort. And you know, people were very upfront about that. It was a little bit like making a movie of a historical subject. I didn't really expect it to be the real thing. But after that point, as the uh, people who had managed to figure out ways of mass duplicating recordings uh, you know, sent out their advertising and tried to make what they were doing seem different from what the competition was doing. Uh, they began to really push this notion of uh, phonographic authenticity, that if uh, something is being passed off as a recording of a speech by, say, William McKinley, uh, then if it isn't really a record of McKinley's voice, then it's fraud. It's not just a clever imitation. But during this very early period of the history, back in the 1890s, uh, people, I think, were a lot more open to the use of the phonograph for clever illusions and fiction and imitations. And uh, at least for me, I find that a little bit more appealing than what came later, a, a more flexible view of, of what you could use a phonograph for that is a bit more like what people decided movies could be. Patrick Feaster, thank you so very much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on your show. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guests, the movie critic Cameron Meyer and Patrick Feaster, principal of firstsounds.org and griffinage.com. One clip we forgot to play was Alexander Graham Bell's own voice from the 1880s. He says, Hear my voice, Alexander Graham Bell. A ghostly voice from the past, isn't it? And instead of our usual Bach play-out music, what more appropriate choice than this equally ghostly performance of the Handel Symphony and Chorus that we spoke of, recorded in 1888 at London's Crystal Palace by Thomas Edison's London agent. You're hearing it now. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter, at Dialect Paul. My guest in January will be Professor Jan Gist, an extraordinarily experienced and gifted Shakespeare text coach. We'll be talking about Shakespeare's shapely language, her term, next time on In a Manner of Speaking.